Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. According to the uh, Christian calendar, the birth of Jesus is followed by the state-mandated murder of children. And this is called the Feast of the Holy Innocents in the church, and it's celebrated on December 28th, this Tuesday, by the Western churches, and on December 29th, Wednesday, by Orthodox churches. And it kind of speaks to the cultural moment that I think we're going through. And of course, it's the story of the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem. It's a bloody story in which Herod, a ruler, feels threatened by small children and has them killed. And let's read the story then in uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod, The king, Magi from the east, arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so I too may come and worship him. Herod and all Jerusalem, it says, are disturbed. And Herod is disturbed, we know, because he perceives a potential rival to his throne has been born. And the story, I think, gives us a working principle on how to consider the desire of government to worship Christ as king. Herod told the wise men, well, tell me, come back and tell me where the child is that I too may go and worship him. And of course, it was a lie. It was a ploy to ensure that his own power would have no challengers. This is in verse 16, the same story. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were born in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. And so these children are remembered by the church as holy innocents. Josephus tells us about Herod that He had three of his own sons killed because he saw them as a threat to his power, as to his throne. There is no record of the event in Josephus, uh, that is of commanding the slaughter of the children, but it certainly fits the character of Herod. 
And the Gospel of Matthew reports that an angel warns Jesus' family of the impending danger, and they leave the country. They become refugees, and Jesus spends his first years of life as a refugee in Egypt. And when he re finally returns from Egypt, his family cannot settle in their ancestral home of Bethlehem because there is still unrest. They're afraid. And though he avoids murder by Herod, he does not escape death by the state. Three decades later, they kill him. Under Pontius Pilate, who is an official of the Roman Empire, he pronounces Jesus' death sentence. And again, the biblical lesson that we learned and that we should not miss is that like Herod, Pilate has Jesus killed unjustly, even in his own estimate to maintain his power and remove a threat to his throne. And so the church calendar calls us to remember that we live in a world in which political leaders are willing to sacrifice the lives of the innocent on the altar of power. We live in a world with families on the run and where in the dark words of scripture a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, she cannot be comforted because they were no more. And so the story of the innocents calls upon us to consider the moral cost of the perpetual battle for power in which political leaders will put on a facade of religion and where the powerless and the poor are slaughtered for the powerful. Whether children at the border or children in the womb, innocents are being slaughtered. Those on the left and those on the right are slaughtering the innocents. And the Christmas story is powerful because it is about the suffering of the innocent. It addresses the same darkness by which we are presently surrounded. The innocents suffer where racism, classism, materialism, the devaluation of human life, they are commonplace. The innocent suffer. People are hurting. And according to the feast of the holy innocents, the focus of God's concern is on this suffering. And so this feast accentuates the fact that God cares about what most people do not think is important. Things that are not taking place in the centers of power. God's concern is centered on events so small in the world's eyes that they do not make the news. They are unrecorded. They are happening in refugee camps, detention centers, slums, and prisons. The Christmas story is set among the poor and humble whose lives are always subject to being forfeited. This is not another story about the rich and powerful, about nations and kings, but God, and this is in Mary's song in Luke, says he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. And where the church has forgotten that it is to be with the weak, the foreigner, the stranger, the innocent, it loses its voice. It fails to follow the mandate of Christ to take up the cross and follow Jesus. And it aligns itself with evil. We know this happened with Emperor Constantine, who made Christianity the state religion, 
And it happens wherever the church imagines it can establish its security in the manner of Herod. That is by a willingness to slaughter the innocent. Evil is to imagine that we secure ourselves through slaughter, through putting people on crosses, through scapegoating. I believe the church and Christians become evil where they align themselves with the willing slaughter of innocent people. We know that three days after the massive terrorist attacks of September 11th, President Bush assured the nation that America's duty was clear to not only answer these attacks, but to rid the world of evil. I'm quoting him. And he quotes St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 38 to 39, that says that nothing can divide us from the love of God. America, Bush says, has set out on a holy war. Our war on terror, I'm quoting, with Al-Qaeda, is with Al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. He says our mission was not merely to bring justice to the men and the groups that attacked the country, but to defend freedom in a world where freedom is under attack. This battle for freedom, he says, would be civilization's fight led by the United States. And the reason I'm referencing this, I think that brings us about a shift in the church and state relationship. In this struggle, both military and metaphysical in Bush's depiction, he says the outcome is certain since freedom and fear, justice and cruelty have always been at war and we know that God is not neutral between them. And so in Bush's picture, we would win the fight against evil through violence, through war, through the destruction of hundreds of thousands of lives. And Bush began a crusade that I think continues, which fused church and state more thoroughly. And we're living in a time more Constantinian when being American is confused with being a Christian. And this is no accident. One of the key shapers of the Bush doctrine, which we still live under, is a man named Richard Newhouse. Newhouse proposed that the American experiment in self-government, he said, should be conceived as a communal covenant under God. When he died and he stood face to face with his creator, he said, I expect to be judged as an American, not as an individual. He holds that the American experience is a sacred enterprise. Another conservative policy shaper, a man named Michael Novak, in his view, Christianity, modern democracy, modern capitalism, arose from and continue to share, quote, the same logic, the same moral principles, the same set of cultural values, institutions, and presuppositions. According to Novak, markets don't simply produce economic growth. He says they mirror the divine trinity. They mirror God in the way they enable diverse individuals to function as one in perfect harmony. He says that God's invisible hand is guiding the market and the rise and spread of democratic capitalism in the world is, quote, the greatest story ever told. 
Irving Kristol claims that modern conservatism should be based on a synthesis of religion, nationalism, and economic growth, and that Republicans should give up their resistance to the transformation of their party into an explicitly religious organization, all for the sake of banishing liberalism, which he describes as the enemy of American political life. One more. This is Steve Bannon, who you may recognize the name. He believes the United States is a Christian nation, not just in the sense that an overwhelming majority of Christians describe themselves as Christians, but also in the sense that the country's culture is Christian. This means our war with evil is a literal war against Islam. We, he uses the we, in the West must affirm our Christian identity, or he says, will be overrun by outsiders, Islamists, who will impose a different identity upon us. In other words, what I'm describing in this picture, America is mistaken for God's kingdom. But we know there's only one Christian kingdom, one Christian city, and that's the church. Where the church is melded or confused for a particular nation, a particular ethnicity, Christians will find themselves supporting tyrants on the left and on the right in the name of Christ. This is not the Christian task. We are not in the business of slaughtering the innocents on behalf of the powerful. So what are we to do? Let's turn to a text that's often cited. And that's Romans 13.1. Actually, this section, I'll refer to it. It begins with the idea, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. But when we read this in light of Paul's overall theology, I think we can best understand the answer to this question. How might followers of Jesus live in the belly of the beast that is the Roman Empire? How might they witness to God's love? Because we live in a very similar circumstance. We do so by rejecting empire idolatry and committing ourselves to peace. Our most radical task, and the most subversive, I believe, is to live as communities where the enmity that had driven Paul, who himself arrested and maybe had people killed. We know that he stood by watching the martyrdom of Stephen. We see that kind of murderous violence overcome. Jew and Gentile join together in one fellowship and they witness to genuine peace in the world. And so I think as Christians we say no to empire. As Christians we do not invest our lives in the salvation offered by the state. We do not seek to exercise power, nor do we offer an unquestioning allegiance to the empire. A president may request our total allegiance, but as Christians, we have already sworn total allegiance to Christ. Jesus' response to his disciples' quest for power, he says, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. But not so among you. 
But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. So we do not participate in the use of the sword or violence on behalf of the powers of this world. We are citizens of a different kingdom, which requires that we yield crosses rather than swords. We say no to violent resistance as Christians. We must not let the empire set our agenda or determine our means of resistance. Certainly we resist evil, but we resist evil in the way that Christ resisted evil. We must not, in seeking to overcome evil, become evil ourselves. And so we want to be free from the idolatry of empire, which demands that we offer up our lives for the state. We need to be free to point out the evils of our nation. And we need to continue then to engage in that task. If we are participants in that evil, we have rendered ourselves useless as salt and light. We have rendered ourselves useless as a witness. And so as Christians, we say yes to communities of resistance. In the end, and I think this is Paul's message, it's an apocalyptic message. It's on the order of that message given in Revelation that centers on the revelation of God's conquering kingdom. God heals violence and human brokenness through people who know God's peace and share that peace with all the families of the earth. And so as Christians, we will continue to be subject to the historical processes in which the sword is indeed wielded. That's what Paul is describing, but that's not our calling. We are called to reconciling ministry. And so Paul distinguishes between government function and Christian function. These are two separate realms, one characterized by darkness and the other characterized by light. So if you look the previous chapter, verse, chapter 12, verse 19, the believer is told, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. And then 13.4, about the state not bearing the sword in vain and being a minister of God, an avenger who brings about wrath upon the one who practices evil, we need to read these two passages together. And we can conclude the function exercised by government is not the function to be exercised by Christians. We're not in the business of vengeance. The righteousness of God has entered the world and exposed its unrighteousness for what it is. If we participate in the unrighteousness, in the violence of the world, we are useless as witnesses. And believers, Paul says, are never called to pay back evil for evil to anyone. He says, in the words of Christ, to bless those who persecute you. And never take revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. And so our love is to always be without hypocrisy, Paul says in chapter 12. All evil is to be abhorred, and we are to cling to what is good. So Romans 13, 8 to 10, calls us back to the supreme law of love, which does no harm or wrong to a neighbor. Look down at verse 11, the following. He calls believers to holiness and purity, beginning verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, 
For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so love does no wrong to a neighbor. Paul says, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing that the time is short, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside deeds of darkness and put on the full armor of light. And so what are we to be about? We're to be about loving the neighbor, fulfilling the law. We're to no more involve ourselves in deeds of darkness. We do not wear the armor of Caesar or America. We wear the armor of light of Christ. Light exposing the darkness. Christ exposes the evil, the principalities and powers, by confronting them. Paul uses the language very similar to John. The world of darkness is passing as it is being penetrated by the light of the gospel. And he describes that we're the bearers of the light. Now Romans 13 is not the center of teaching on the state in the Bible. There is a very strong strand of the gospel that sees this world as under the sovereignty of Satan. In Luke 4, 5 to 8, the devil shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world and he says, all of these kingdoms have been handed over to me and I give them to whomever I wish. Jesus doesn't challenge Satan's claim. Satan claims to be able to dispose as he will. And Paul's own teaching in 2 Corinthians 4 is that Satan is the god of this world. He is, in Ephesians 2, called the prince of the power of the air. And John concurs with this view, and he says in 1 John 5:19, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The prophet Hosea, who condemns Israel and affirms that her own government, that is the kings and rulers of Israel, were not ordained by God. Hosea 8.4 They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it none. In Revelation 13, Rome is pictured as a blasphemous beast. Compare that to Romans 13. We find a picture of a world government given authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. But this isn't God's government. This government is arrogantly blasphemous. It blasphemes against heaven and makes war on the saints and overcomes them. And we need to be able to point out the beast who rules over us. Christians are involved in solving the problem through a new political order, through a new kingdom, a new economics, a new culture called the church. Christians should never blindly obey government or acquiesce to evil or imagine we can serve God and mammon, Christ and the devil. Certainly render all, as Jesus says, to whom what is due, tax to whom tax is due, 
custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. But look at the inscription on the coin, Jesus says, but whose inscription is upon you? And to whom do you belong? Do you belong to Caesar or Christ? To America or Christ? And so the very telling of the Christian story, the Christmas story, if told rightly, I believe it's an act of resistance. We see the lie of the state, the manipulations of power. We see through the lies as we identify with the slain innocents. The innocents are at the border. They're the innocents of the womb, the enslaved, the outcasts, the refugees. God's side is with the weak things of the world, shaming the strong. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. And we know God hears the cries of the oppressed, and they do not go forever unanswered. Whether the innocent slaughtered by Herod or the innocent slaughtered by America, we know that their cause is taken up by the innocent one who suffered under Pontius Pilate. Through the slaughter of the truly innocent one, God was emptying death of its power, vanquishing evil and overcoming violence. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.